welcome to episode 14 of the Bulak podcast, coming to you from Rabat, Morocco. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and with me is Marsha Links-Qualey. Hello. Hi, Marsha. And uh, happy Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak to all our Muslim listeners, and solidarity to Gaza. Yes. Um, we're going to talk, as usual, about some of the things we've been reading, writing, thinking about, um, and uh, I wanted to start with um, an article that you wrote recently, Marsha, that is a really nice overview of this pretty ambitious and interesting project you've been running on your blog. And um, so this is your project where you are interviewing uh, professors about how they teach Arabic literature and Arabic literature and translation. Yes. And um, you wrote up something about this, about the things you've discovered by doing this for Al-Fanar, which is a publication I work with, so I'm like very excited that you're contributing. Indeed, when they contacted me, they said, Ursula already writes for our publication, so... So there you are. Now yeah. I hope you'll I hope you'll write some more. And um, uh, so so you've done like already an insane amount of interviews. Have, how many people have you already spoken to for this series? Uh, well, only eighteen of them have run, which is, but it involved maybe uh, twenty different people, and then I have three more that are in process uh, with. Um, six more people, because some of them are joint interviews. Several people in one department wanted to talk about together how they work with Arabic literature and translation. And when and how did you think of, did the idea for the series sort of come come into your head? Um, Well, Arab Lit has done a number of series in the past. Um, I spent some year uh, interviewing Iraqi poets about their work, and then um, I did a series on uh, Arabic films that were made from from uh, that were based on books. And I I think I was talking with Emily Drumstra, who teaches at Brown University, um, or Drumstra Drums anyway, um, and she was talking about how she's teaching. Or maybe she was tweeting about how she teaches uh, women in Arabic literature course, starting with classics and and working up through contemporary literature. And she was tweeting slash talking about some of the issues that she faced in assembling this class. Uh, you know, a number. Of, this has come up with a number of people. If they're teaching a sort of a survey course about the whole Arabic literature, about literature that comes from a whole region, and they really end up teaching about literature from Palestine, Lebanon, and Egypt with one novel from one other country, you know, th- this sort of dynamic. But um, so I said, well, let's, let's talk about this. I really want to run an interview about it. And then as I, uh, and you know, Arab Lit does frequently this sort of Q&A format, um, either over Skype or usually either over Skype or just a back and forth on a Google document or something. Um, and But after we'd started, um, it, it occurred to me that I wanted to talk to a lot more people who were teaching with Arabic literature, particularly Arabic literature and translation, um, which I think, as I noted in, in Fanat, is a, is a relatively new phenomenon. So if you say that enrollments, and I sort of am anecdotally uh, tying it to, so the explosion in enrollments in Arabic language classes, which doubled between 98 and 2002, according to the MLA in the United States. I don't know how it played out in the UK. Uh, But the UK has also seen a large rise in Arabic literature and translation courses. So, and then it further continued rising until this most recent period, 2013 to 16, they saw some fall off in Arabic language enrollments. They don't track Arabic literature and translation courses because you can't track everything. But to me, it seems like as this larger population moved into these these courses, had some Arabic, had some interest in the place where Arab, you know, places rather where Arabic is spoken. Um, these uh, Arabic, there was a, also a surge in Arabic culture classes, Arabic film, Arabic literature, etc. I think also there's just a move towards 
diversification in the in academia generally, right? Like I think offering um, more and more classes that are outside of the sort of classic Western canon. Sure, definitely. Yeah, so um, also uh, another part of it is that previously there was not that much Arabic literature in translation. And also Arabists themselves, who those who taught literature, um, many who taught previous uh, to the uh, September 2001, felt it wasn't authentically teaching Arabic literature if you were teaching it in translation. They preferred only to teach Arabic literature in Arabic. Mm. So this is another sort of shift of Arabists, and a lot of people who are doing this are complete people as well. Complete people who, who know Arabic um, uh, are, are more comfortable teaching Arabic literature in a translated form or in a bilingual class in a variety of, of different ways. Yeah, I mean, because it takes so long to get to the level where you can... I, and I think that's a it's a very worthy goal. And once you get interested in the language, it can be a great goal to work towards. And then once you start reading in the language, it's sort of, you know, you're doing two things at once, or at least. Um, but it, it can take so long to get there. Uh, I also, I liked the sort of... Uh, examples that professors gave of how they're 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 doing translation exercises in class using literary texts mm. uh that just seems like such a fun way to like work on the language and do really close readings of like short literary texts like yeah there were a number of uh, at the AOB um uh Rana Isa, she she works between she is running this series called uh Tarjamat uh which is a public lecture series, and that's what we talked about. But part of what she also does is allows the students to choose texts and bring them into the classroom, and a number of others. I thought I found what Margaret Litvin said really interesting. That there's, in many ways, this you know the the high level of achieving fluency in a language is really valorized. Most people never do that. And are are you gonna kill yourself over it? Are you going to die over it? Or are you just going to take the level that you have and use it to what it's able to do and also use the translation? Yeah, I really like the idea of sort of kind of muddling through, but in a way that's fun. Mm. Like, I mean, the way, one of the ways that I learned Arabic in the program I was in was they assigned you at a certain point, uh, basically a book a week and right. you just the Kasha program. Yeah, and you just and they and their method was just get through it. Like even if you don't understand everything, just keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. Um and that actually one worked and two was actually a lot of fun. I just remember like afternoons with like the dictionary, your coffee, <laughs> your cigarettes, whatever. And and these books and you would just kind of move on through it and the thing is that you can enjoy and learn a lot even when you don't have a mastery of the text right and and even I think you can the fact that you're moving so slowly and um with so much effort makes you do these weird close readings which you you wouldn't do otherwise like you wouldn't you don't read in English that way. You don't, like, pour over every word and pay attention to every expression. And so you actually remember some of those texts really, really well. Right. Yeah, and I think some people taught in different ways. Some of them taught the Arabic first, feeling that it's important for you to do that slog. And some taught the, well, maybe only Margaret teaches the English first to give you this sort of big picture and then you get into the nitty-gritty of what's going on with those individual sentences and how can you compare them to what the translator did. Um, and I think also, so most of what I, a lot of what I saw was literature in conflict, uh, literature about, in, in some ways reflective of what the same thing you see in newspapers, you know, um, a lot of Palestine, some Palestine and Israel literary courses where they teach both Palestinian and Israeli literature together. Um, uh, 
Lebanese Civil War literature, which is, of course, a very rich vein and has a lot translated, and then less about areas where there isn't that much literature translated. Um, so I talked to Alex Elinson about doing a Moroccan literature course, but it was sort of a hypothetical. What, what would you teach if you were teaching a Moroccan literature course? He hasn't done that yet. Yeah, in English, I mean, if you were teaching a Moroccan literature course or an Algerian literature course within the French department, you could find plenty. Right, right. I did talk with one Italian professor who teaches Algerian literature in Italian only as translated from the Arabic, and she has a very limited number of texts to work with. Yeah, I bet. But, I mean, it's... Uh, I think you've got a lot of response to this series, right? From Yeah, it has been a, a, a great series. I originally uh, imagined some of the people, the, some of the instructors that I talked to in South Carolina and how interested they were in knowing well, what are other people doing in teaching with uh, people who have world lit classes and want to do something with Arabic literature, but didn't know where to start, where to look, what kind of resources are there out there? Um, but I think there's been a, a large response, and I'm interested in all sorts of different aspects of it, like seeing trends in what people are teaching, how are they changing, and what is working, what is not working. I would like to somehow spin this off into into a somewhat standalone project, separate from Arab Lit, uh, but it's not quite yet clear how to do that. There are a number of people, both in Arab countries who teach in English and in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, who are interested in this as a resource, but how does one make it self-sustaining? I'm not entirely sure. You need a grant or a patron. Um, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure it can be figured out. I think it is a great resource and, and not just because it gives you like really up-to-date suggestions of texts that could be used within particular uh, thematic focuses or regional focuses, but also because the conversations with the professors he sort of goes over all the methodological and theoretical um, questions and pitfalls and concerns about uh, teaching in this field. And so I imagine it's like you know, a very, very interesting for professors to sort of see how other people have like thought about questions that must come up again and again um, when you're teaching. Right. I mean, I think as always, so I was imagining this small town professor in Indiana, but as always, most of the readers have been this sort of small core of people who are already teaching with Arabic literature and translation. And they're like, wow, that's what Renoir says. That's really interesting. Well, what I think, you know, but, you know, eventually I would like it to reach out somewhat wider. Wider, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think underlying your blog, underlying this project, underlying a little bit also this podcast, I think, is that we would both like to see Arabic literature, literature translated from Arabic, literature from this part of the world, just reach the largest number of people. Mm. I mean, I you know, I I don't think of it as a niche thing. I, I right, mean, or, right, right. I I would prefer not to think of it as a niche thing. Yeah, the same people who who like Roberta Bolaño, who like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who are who would be interested in reading literature from Latin America. I think you could use that same. I you know, I'm interested not only in McDonald's hamburgers to read Arabic literature as well. Is that the ad campaign for Arabic literature? <laughs> not <laughs> if you're not just interested in McDonald's. Well, so this actually kind of connects to this idea of the potential international appeal and audience of literature uh, from other parts of the world, whether it's this part of the world, um, connects to this essay that... Um, that you shared with me that I had actually like a lot of thoughts and feelings about. Yes. Um, Comforting Myths, Myths, Notes from a Purveyor by Rabih Alamadine, who is a Lebanese novelist of quite, uh, of, of major standing, um, whose most recent novel was The Angel of History, although I think his 
one previous to that made a larger splash, The Unnecessary Woman. Um, but I am a, I'm a team angel of history uh, uh, reader myself. So he's a Lebanese novelist. He writes in English, though? Yes, he's always written in English. And he wrote this, this essay, uh, like you said, Comforting Myths, in the last issue of Harper's Magazine. Well, the June issue, so maybe it's the next issue of Harper's Magazine. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> the current issue yes. of Harper's Magazine. Um, so do you want to try and lay out the arguments or some of the arguments? Because there's quite a few, and which is part of the charm of the essay. Like, I really liked the way it was written. It's sort of um, personal and a bit playful and a, a bit all over the place in a good way. Yeah, yeah. It is, it, it is, um, it is somewhat like his novel Angel of History, a bit pastiche-ish. Um, the first thing that caught my eye as I was reading, well, a lot of it caught my eye, but the first thing where I, uh, I tweeted out my yes, Rabia, was uh, he was talking about, um, first he was talking about Heart of Darkness. Yes. Oh, sorry, can, Go I, ahead. Just, can yes. I just get in there? So mm -hmm. what are your feelings on Conrad? On Conrad? I, I guess my feelings are fairly similar to this, which are, uh, yes, it is a masterwork, but no, that does not mean that it's not a racist masterwork. And, and vice versa, yes, it's racist, but no, that doesn't mean it's not a masterwork. Right. I mean, I'm not going to celebrate slash teach slash write about Conrad's work, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to deny that it's artistically meritorious. One thing I found slightly hard with just thinking about this was like, I read Heart of Darkness many, many years ago. Mm. And often, you know, so when so you read something, someone builds an argument around a book, and it's something that you're familiar with. But frankly, like, you were always in the process of forgetting books you've read, mm -hmm. right? So I, I don't have the time. I mean, I haven't had the time to go back and reread Heart of Darkness. And so what you're left with, you're like, do I agree with this argument or not? And you're thinking back to the book, and you're like, yeah, I mean, clearly that is a huge issue with the book. And I feel like even at the time I was taught it, it was not taught just as a critique of empire. It was taught with this ambiguity already at least mentioned, you know, that it is a critique of empire, but also somehow a reinforcement of a lot of racist stereotypes and, and prejudices. Um, but the, the problem I find sometimes when I'm trying to like evaluate a text is like, if I haven't just read that text in the last year, yeah, I remember, you know, five scenes. I have a, I remember how it made me feel. But right. That is really different from remembering. Yes. Well, to be honest, I've read other works by Joseph Conrad more recently. So I'm probably more rolling off my opinions of those works mm. than Heart of Darkness, which I may have read when I was, you know, 16. And I have a feeling, so I remember how I felt when I first read it in high school, and I do remember it being striking on a literary level, like, like kind of very, very memorable. Mm. And then I think I was maybe quite young to, you know... I mean, it's a work that you can sort of keep on discussing all your life, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's I think I think what he says is true. I think um, it is a work of its time with its prejudices, and at the same time, there is something strong and ambiguous and complicated enough about it as a literary work that it doesn't. That I don't think he's excusing it though as a work of its time. I think he's saying there were more critical works that we didn't hear about. The reason that we hear about this is because it it's a masterwork and it supports in some way it empire. Supports, it supports empire because it sort of like emphasizes the moral uh, agony or um, degeneration of the white man when he's put in this position of uh, you know, having this power over others right. thrust upon him. Being forced being forced to kill others, as we saw in this um, New York Times article uh, recently that quotes uh, the Israeli writer Edgar Caret, when he was talking about empathy and the recent um, killings of unarmed protesters in Gaza, he was saying, why can't my neighbors 
realized they should feel empathy for these soldiers who had to kill these unarmed protesters. And Rabia connects it to the American war novels uh, that have come out um, first of Vietnam and I don't know the ones that came out of Afghanistan, but, uh, but certainly, ones, certainly there are a number of Iraq ones, redeployment, yellow birds, uh, a number of really prominent uh, Iraq war novels, um, and where Iraqis themselves are, of course, sort of background furniture, and it really is about the soldier, or in, in some cases, um, Eric Something's book about the torture grappling with their own humanity. Right. It's definitely a, a, a genre, the sort of war novel in which the war atrocities are viewed mostly from the point of view of how much they make the perpetrator suffer. Feel bad, yes. Suffer. Um, which, again, like, it's not... You can include that point of view. It is just that it is it is striking the degree to which that is the only point of, that is the point of view through which national literature and cinema tends to approach uh, the conflicts or imperial projects or colonial projects. Um, and I think his argument would be this is the type of literature that supports empire, that supports this project. Because in the, at the end, yes, the, the soldier may be critical of certain aspects, but at the end of the day, we are identifying primarily with this soldier. With the soldier, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that either. I think that that is a... I think that that's a pretty... Yeah, I agree with that observation. And um, then he goes on to compare Conrad to uh, the Sudanese author Tayyip Saleh, mm -hmm. whose uh, season of migration to the north is a great novel that I love. So the Translated other by Dennis Johnson Davies. Oh. One of the other things that I love about this essay is that it mentions a lot of writers that I really know and like. Mm. Um, so, Sal I mean, I love that book, although I think it's a flawed book also, and he kind of gets to why it's flawed, which right. is yes. basically its depiction of women. Right. Um, um, or the, you know, there's, and he talks about that in a funny way, actually. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is a, a, a really, again, a book that sort of stays with you. There are scenes of it that stay with you. Oh, it's a book that sort of, I, you can't reduce down to a single explanation. Like you can't, it, it, it doesn't just allow you for for like a single, I think, clear sort of reading. Like there's so much going on there, and it is very much a counter-colonial narrative. Mm. And there are still so many books writing, not writing back to, to a season of migration to the north, but writing in that vein, still grappling with the ideas, scenes, characters in, that were created in that book. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say, and it's a quibble, like, so when he does discuss when Alamedin discusses, you know, the protagonist's uh, time in London and his sort of, like, sexual vengeance upon the West, mm. which he takes through his relationships with, with white women, I do think the depiction of white women is, like, very stereotypical. He does actually do almost the same thing. He says he doesn't. He says, you know, he gives the denizens of London some, you know, agency or interiority yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think actually <laughs> probably not. That is the hardest part. And I studied this book with Elias Khoury at, um, I think, or we discussed it with with him and with Sinan Antun years ago in at New York University. And everyone has a hard time with that portion of the book, with how to make sense of it in, mm. in the whole in the whole book. Like, I think, again, it's not, it's not that there's you know, it, it's not that you want to say, like, he shouldn't depict, if that is the sort of trajectory of his character, and that is, that speaks to something that is actually out there, the sort of intersection of colonial power dynamics and sexual power dynamics. Mm. Um, but it is, it is, a, a, and then there's also that, like, sex, terrible sexual violence that happens when he comes back home, mm -hmm. which to me is a really powerful and mysterious and hard to read part of the book. Hard to read in the sense of, like, hard to make explicit, hard to sort of explain. Right. But that makes the book for me. Like, um, anyway, I, I, I love that book. And I think there's many examples of that kind of writing. Um, I mean, the recent book um, by Kamal Daoud, the Algerian writer, where he rewrites the Camus story, The Stranger, 
is a great also like counter-colonial narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so I think this this is maybe the one book that he names. So he go- then goes on from here to say, uh, what is world literature? Uh, or there is now a thing called world literature. The, the thing to which uh, Tayyib Salad does not belong. Um, and the world literature that we get is mostly... Um, I'm going to look up the list of authors he mentioned. Okay. Uh, in my recollection, he talks about when he was a Newstead judge and that well, these other judges were from around the world, but they really lived in, in New York or on the East Coast or, well, himself in, in San Francisco, uh, that this sort of world literature is sometimes um, uh, an Egyptian-American literature and an Italian-American literature and a Chinese-American literature rather than, he says, engaging with the other other, the... Uh, the literature in, in the, for, the, the, the literature in translation, the literature written in a different genre model. Yeah, so for me, it's when he moves to discussing um, world literature and sort of who represents other parts of the world. I think he moves, he's moving from these depictions of empire into that because basically I think the assumption of the piece is, um, is that it's important to have voices who don't provide these sort of uh, comforting myths about empire and that and that and that are genuinely subversive and oppositional, right? right? And then he sort of implies that those voices, he says they're not part of the the dominant culture. For me, already I have a question about like what do we mean by the dominant culture? So mm-hmm. already we're assuming that the dominant culture is Western culture, mm-hmm. like because those voices aren't present in. English language literature, to me, that doesn't mean that they're not present. I mean, oh, right, so, right, right, right. You know, it really focuses as if all that matters is what's a bestseller in the U.S. I mean, there are other countries with other literary cultures that are alive and vibrant and huge, and I don't think people there are, are reading mostly American best-selling authors. Right, like, or necessarily worried about whether their work is translated into English. Right. I guess the idea is that, like, we're, we're, we're starting from this point of view that it's a, it, it, it would be beneficial to the U.S. and U.S. readers or Western readers to be faced with these with these, to be educated, to be shocked, to, to to be challenged by these voices, and that they're not present. And then he sort of gives a list of, and he's not being, I think, um, he it's not a put down to these writers. He's just saying the kinds of writers that are bestsellers, and it's true, is sort of like Amy Tan for China, Alexander Hemin representing Bosnia, Juno Diaz for the Dominican Republic. Uh, Hisham Matar for Libya, you know, Salman Rushdie for India or Pakistan, or he says, what the hell, let's give him the entire subcontinent. And he says, I get Lebanon. Mm. Um, And I mean, that is is actually a pretty true depiction, I think, of the way publishing and marketing works. Yes. Right. And and to to the extent where, you know, if you then go try and pitch a Lebanese, well, no, we've already got a Lebanese guy. We've got this guy, Rabi. Right. But then he says, he sort of says, because these, uh, these authors are not, in fact, foreign. Like, they are most, because they write in English, they're, they've gone to English writing schools sometimes. Um, uh, they sort of live in the, in the, in the West. Uh, and so th- they are cute and safe. We are cute and safe options. Right. As opposed to kind of the real thing. Right. So, like, for me, the question was, oh, but he never names the real thing. He never gives examples other than perhaps Tayyip Saleh, who is not an unheard of author, though. It's no, not like no, no. he's, yeah. he's just not a current best-selling author. Um, but who are the voices that are genuinely subversive? I wish the piece had given me some examples to evaluate the differences. Right. He'd said Hisham Matar is not, which I think Hisham Matar maybe is genuinely subversive. Or you can, uh, we can make an argument that he is. And Ibrahim Ekoni is, or uh, Nashwa bin Shadwan is genuinely subversive. If you want to, you know, bunch them all just by the fact that they were born in Libya. Yeah, and I mean, to me, it's like not particularly surprising that authors who write in English who maybe live or have lived in the West and are therefore like 
uh, you know, uh, more familiar with a Western audience and are sort of writing also with a Western reader in mind and who have also maybe had trained in sort of forms that are like currently in vogue in the West, that those authors would be the ones that are the most commercially successful seems kind of normal to me and not just a conspiracy of empire. Like it just seems like a, a natural outcome of your of the of, of your sort of formal training and the audience that you're working towards and the language that you're working in. Right. Although, you know, to some extent, English, you know, so there are other languages that are more interested in what's going on formally and what are other what's going on in other languages they're more interested in bringing in that to their language whereas english is a little bit in this sort of self-satisfied moment of we are the ones who are creating the best novels out there we don't really have to go see in what ways other people are writing novels we know we what we're looking for is maybe the stories that they're telling the information that they're giving us but not necessarily the new sort of genre or ways of, of building uh, aesthetically the literature yeah i think this sort of whole cat i mean the interest in world literature is small and superficial let's say i mean famously so kind of infamously so and and um and then the whole the whole category of world literature is ridiculous Mm -hmm. I mean, just ridiculous. Like, it shouldn't exist. Like, obviously, American literature is part of world literature, or Western literature is part of it. Like, it, it just, it, 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 it's like a nonsensical distinction um, that just kind of confuses things, actually. Right. Yeah, I taught a third world literature course once at the University of Minnesota, and I found that equally. In, in, in one way, I liked it because I felt that it, I could basically teach anything I wanted because pretty much, you know, Anything I wanted to teach was from somewhere in the third world. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I just, I almost feel like it's a red herring to the arguments, mm. to most of the other arguments in the piece. Like, I mean, unfortunately it exists and there are certain sort of commercial realities to publishing, to being reviewed. You know, he also, um, Alamedine, you know, mentioned some of the reception of his work, which was super frustrating. I can understand why he's sort of, as he says, you know, great at complaining, <laughs> because I would complain too. Right, uh, one of them, which is the most, every time I read this bit, uh, it makes me laugh. This describes, I, I, I think it was uh, describing um, not uh, The Angel of History, but his previous novel, uh, as a bridge to the Arab soul. Um, anyway, I hope it was his previous novel, since um, Angel of History takes place largely in San Francisco, among the gay community. And while there are Arab characters, I don't know that you could portray it as a bridge to the Arab soul. I mean, obviously, the idea of a singular Arab soul is pretty funny, and no matter which way you slice it. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, there's sort of like, you don't quite know what to say. Like, writers from other countries are going to face these kinds of really lazy cliches and framing of their work, and it's, I think, nearly impossible for them to, like, break through all of this or avoid it. Um you one tends to hope that that this that this framing and this reception like doesn't define their work too much that's yeah. all well, you can I hope think for every re potential reviewer who has now read this is not going to use the phrase bridge to the arab soul i mean they write, might write something just as funny but it won't be that particular phrase yeah. And, the, you know, in, in talking about sort of the investment of empire in narratives, certainly when he's talking earlier about these U.S. soldier narratives, that is something that the U.S. Department of Defense has specifically invested in, the creative writing of returning soldiers to write books about their experiences in Iraq. So, yeah, I mean... Okay, so then the other big question I have about the piece is this. Um, well, first of all, I, just to talk about imperial censorship, I think you had a very nice quote that I wanted to say that sort of talks about, it says, today's imperial censorship is usually masked as the publisher's bottom line. This won't sell is the widest moat in the castle's defenses. Mm. So, I, yeah, I mean, but but one thing that this this whole discussion brings up for me is why is it that only foreign literature is being tasked with sort of being genuinely subversive and educating the American public? Well, I like, think it's not necessarily... He does mention James Baldwin right at the beginning. He does, and that he does, which is a perfect example. Like, you know, our own writers can critique empire with 
full, full, you know, right. very efficiently, very memorably. And then, but he says about Baldwin, he said, he brings him up only to then say that he's popular now because it's, he says it's easier now to tell ourselves that Baldwin is not talking about us, that he's talking about that time, mm-hmm. which I, I'm sorry, I completely disagree with. I mm-hmm. think the, the pe- reason people have been reading Baldwin again a lot in recent years is because, in fact, he seems very much to speak to the current moment. Um, right. I don't think that people reading and quoting him... Uh, have Martin these, Luther Kingized him, have yeah, turned or, him into a safe forgotten a lot of what he's written and turned him into a safe thing of the past. And yeah, and our and our and our and our sort of think reading him and thinking like, oh wow, things were terrible back then. No, mm. they're 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 reading him and thinking, God, this really exactly describes what this country is still today. And yeah. I've seen that again and again in that. people who cite him. So I mean I think there are so one, the question is like, is it a responsibility for all writers? to not just critique empire, but sort of like critique power, right? Right. Well, he does certainly leave out. I mean, he lets the regular, what is he called? Regular? Common. The common, yes. He lets the common American writer really off the hook in terms of critiquing empire. Well, you guys are busy writing your romance and erotica and Jonathan Franzen novels. You know, you don't have time to, or aren't able to, or... Well, so that's the question that up for me because I sort of feel like I, why should this, if this is um, a responsibility in some sense, or if, why, so all the homegrown writers, they're also cute and safe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, have very little to say most most of the time about economics, <laughs> about war. They're a lot war, cuter and safer about, than Shemotor. Yeah, um, so I sort of feel like this this burden should be put on all writers or no writers. Yes, definitely. I will struggle tomorrow to be less cute and safe. <laughs> and and the last thing I'd say about this whole being cute and safe thing is, I'm not sure it can be get a lit a little tautological in the sense where like being successful commercially successful in the West becomes evidence that you're safe. Right. And the you know leads immediately to sort of the accusation which he levels at himself and these others that you are right. tour guides. Right. Like I I will assert until my dying breath that Octavia Butler for instance is not cute and safe despite the fact that she did achieve as she did achieve the commercial and critical success that she set out to achieve. But her work you still read it and it still rings with um the issues about racism that she was writing about when she first set out. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, if you start from the position that the dominant discourse does not allow in critical voices, then you end up at the position that all the voices you hear must be part of the dominant discourse. I think there's somewhere in between. And to be fair to Alamedin, he also says we are living in a moment that is more inclusive of outside voices than mm-hmm. ever before. Like, and I, th- I think that's probably true. I think that in the, the English mo- language, per se, I mean, only judging from the standpoint of English language, not saying um, this is the moment that Chinese literature wasn't open to. Uh, I mean, I have no sure, idea, honestly, sure. what's going on right. with Chinese literature. No, Zero. I mean, we are. De- I mean, this this piece is. This is definitely a discussion that is sort of like discussing, I guess, largely English language literature. And I would say just discourse generally, that at the same time that we're becoming very, very polarized politically, part of the reason that that's happening is because there has been a pushing open of the boundaries of who is allowed to speak Mm -hmm. and represent themselves and sort of be included. And so I think generally, again, this is something that he says that I would agree with, is that there are more, the discourse is both more inclusive and at the same time, sort of more hostile in these awful ways because yes. it's sort of more more combative and less civil and also there are more more voices because more diverse because some people are more worried about right. losing what they perceive as their piece of the pie right yeah yeah absolutely but anyway i mean i really enjoy i'm i i was happy to see uh this essay in like a american magazine that i really have always liked a lot and uh, and I think it just raised a lot of interesting things, and I liked how sort of like 
honest and personal and kind of off the cuff and writerly. Like he just had, you could see that it was written by a writer with a writer's voice. Yeah, I, I think of Rabia as a bit of a writer's writer. I mean, obviously he's popular as well. And then um, the the did you have anything else that you wanted to say about him or about this? No. Okay. All right. We've said our piece. Um, then I'll move on to something to another uh, book that I wanted to that I've been actually sort of uh, rushing through this week because I have to interview somebody about it this afternoon, um, which is a new text that's been put out by the Museum of Modern Art as part of their primary documents series. Uh, and it's about um, modern Arab art. So this series... Uh... Oh, sorry. So then I do want to say one more thing, that Rabia Ahmadine is also a visual artist. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. He also has this uh, great Twitter feed where he's always uh, uh, tweeting about a visual art because he's originally a visual artist. Really? Yes. Before he became a writer? Yes. And he still does... I imagine that he still does painting. Okay, cool. He still talks a lot about painting. All right, that's neat. Well, um, actually, the the book that I wanted to talk about this week but um, is about modern art in the Arab world. It's something that is put out by the Museum of Modern Art for this series called Primary Documents, um, which is, I, I think they have many volumes out at this point, but this is the first one um, looking at Arab modern art. And as the title suggests, so they go um, looking for manifestos, diary entries, uh, reviews, debates in the press, uh, any sort of text that was produced by artists um, or about art. Uh, and uh, this is like a really, really huge um, scholarly work, like a mm. really impressive, I mean, a lot of thought and effort has gone into this. I can't imagine how many years. Uh, and is it structured chronologically or by school of art? or No, so it's, chron it's chronological. Mm. And then within the chronology, they sort of have many sections about various artistic movements. So it starts in like the late 19th century and it goes up to the 1980s it covers about a century um it starts like one of the earliest texts is muhammad abdu the famous religious scholar and reformers discussing like whether art is uh, forbidden or not right. religiously um and and it also has these like beautiful beautiful reproductions of a lot of the works so it gives you the sort of actually history of the 20th century in the Arab world, because of course the things that artists are engaging with is the same thing, you know, questions of uh, modernity and how to incorporate Western influences, but also find a sort of something unique, uh, local uh, in your in the style and essence of your of your art. Um, questions of like the freedom of the artist. Uh, the responsibility of the artist, uh, how to do art criticism. So there's like mm. these neat debates between artists and critics about their work, including uh, early on, there is a debate, there is a takedown of the Egyptian sculptor um, Mokhtar's very, very famous statue. Uh, I think it's called Egypt Awakening. Mm -hmm. You know, those there's the sphinx yes. and the, a, a female figure sort of taking her veil off. Uh, I think it's from the 1930s. This monumental sculpture is still in Cairo today. And there's just a reviewer, a critic, like totally makes fun of it. But pretty actually sharply. Mm -hmm. So he critiques it both formally and conceptually. And then there's a response by Mokhtar. Oh. Yeah. And, and there's a number of those kinds of exchanges where there'll sort of be a new school formed and they issue their manifesto and then someone, you know, writes something dismissive about their ideas or critical of their ideas and they respond and it's sort of an exchange in the press and you get those those articles. Uh, and some of the manifestos... Oh, Gibran, Khalil Gibran is super boring. Yeah, I think we knew that. Even in his personal letters. Like... <laughs> super run-on and sent, like I, I was like oh my gosh he wrote like this even like to his friends just mm. sentimental and self-indulgent and 
I mean, not my thing. Right. Not my thing. But a very popular sort of romanticism for some. I guess. I don't know. Was he like the Paulo Coelho of the... He may be. You know, he's George W. Bush's favorite author, isn't he? I don't know. I've never so. read... I mean, I've never I've never read The Prophet, right? I'm pretty sure that's George W. Bush's favorite book. Oh. Um, but I... Yeah. Anyway, but then a lot of other writers write very funny. I like the, like, really sort of... Um, the surrealist manifestos, the situationist manifestos, these guys have a sense of humor and uh, they're they're kind of subversive. There's a, I just, uh, I'm only about halfway through because it's 440 pages long, but I'm, in, I'm actually enjoying it so much I, I want to read it. Um, the Egyptian artist Inji Aflatoun has a nice account of her time in prison and how she managed to get painting supplies. Wow, amazing. Yeah. And there's a work of hers. So there's a work of hers, and I, and it's like these trees through this window, and the trees are lovely, but the colors are really kind of livid. And when you look at it, you think, hmm, it's so, such a strange contrast. Like, it's this beautiful natural scene, but the feeling you get from it is kind of gross because mm-hmm. of the colors. And then, it, then you know, 150 pages later, when you get to her, uh, her section, you realize that she was painting that in prison, and it all makes sense. Right. It was like the only view she had of this window. Um, and she describes all the ways where they convinced uh, slowly the prison administration to allow her to paint, and then all the ways where the prison administrators, like, basically took a bunch of her work as bribes, so the warden of her prison has, like, a great NGF Latoon collection. Ah. Yeah, as payoff, they, like, made her give them lots of their works, or they confiscated lots of them, and how she would smuggle paintings out, but a lot of her portraits of fellow prisoners were just confiscated by the prison administration. She was told they'd be too depressing. That's painful. Yeah, but really interesting to read. Yeah, it definitely gives a, a tremendous context to being to viewing the the visual. Uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, I'm not. I'm a little bit interested in contemporary art, and now and then I write about it, but not. I don't feel like I'm very knowledgeable. But I've really enjoyed this, and I think it must be a major scholarly reference for people. It's it's just uh, coming out. I think this month. Excellent. Yeah, I think there's some from Mama. From MoMA, there may be a university press involved whose name I am forgetting now, but I'll put it in the show notes. I think they're doing like a launch. They're doing multiple launches and one in the region, I think in Beirut is what I had heard. Um, But yeah, I mean, I do have a question about sort of its overall availability. Mm. I think that some of the texts are available online on the the site that's dedicated to the book. Uh, and of course, a lot of the originals are in Arabic, but I think they got them from all over, um, all, all sorts of different sources. So I, I don't know how accessible the originals are. They're, are they making any of the originals accessible on the internet? No? Uh, I didn't. I saw the translations and not mm-hmm. the originals, but this is something I'm going to speak to one of the authors, so maybe I'll find out a bit more Um because yeah, it's 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 an amazing reference, and I think part of it also, you know, for every lazy time that you sort of read something that makes it sound as if modernity is like a brand new import to this part of the world, and then you know you see these long, articulate, passionate conversations about like what art is and what modern art is and sort of like how the intersection between like technology and society and artistic expression have been going on for like over a century here of course right as they have been elsewhere yeah but it's that's what people are interested in yeah, yeah, of course. But it's just nice to sort of get a full, the right. full kind of right. complexity and density of these conversations really laid out for you this nicely. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I often this sort of the modernity of the novel is sometimes packaged up as something that was imported to Arab countries when colonialism arrived It sort of came in a full package. People unwrapped it and started making their own novels. The first novel is Zainab. Um, 
But yeah, when you look at the much messier history of interaction of Arab novelists writing against the novel, reading Western novels in the middle 1800s and saying, well, this is a crap literary form. I'm going to make something different. Um, so yeah, I, I would be really interested to see how these different primary sources grapple with different forms of art. Yeah, I mean, the question of, of foreign and Western influence is very much there. Mm. Although, of course, like, nobody sort of, like, critiques a Western artist. This was at the same time when Western arts were hugely influenced by all the other right. world arts right. that they were meeting at that moment, right? But that doesn't, that never invalidates... Right, in fact, they're, like, discovering a new thing. Right, and yet somehow immediately making it their own. Like, you don't have this, this sort of... Con I mean, it, of course, it's a reminder of how, like, just deeply undermining colonialism was and destabilizing it was. Uh, but it also, it's it's exciting, a lot of the writing, because, because they're young people, and they're, like, launching art movements, mm. and... Um, Excellent. Well, I look forward to finding my way to a copy at some point. Yeah, I so I made the mistake because I'm I'm writing about it again for Al Fanar for this site that that writes about education in the region. I um, they said, oh well, if you're in a hurry, we'll send you the PDF. And I said yes, but now I worry that I'm not gonna really have a reason to ask for the hard copy. Although I kind of want a hard <laughs> copy, like I'm sure it's a, I'm also sure it weighs like ten pounds. Yeah, no, so mailing it here will be a thing. Yeah, so I'm going to have to be honest, since it's not like I need it uh, to, to write the review, but uh, it's the kind of book... Also, the when you actually look at the works, after all this context that's been provided by the text, you you sort of see the the schools and the movements and the development, and you also see more than I have in the past. Like, I sort of saw modern Arab art as its own, um, like to see so many works juxtaposed and to sort of have a sense of the different schools and how they were in relation to each other, you see it as an organism. Right. Which is also kind of exciting. Yes, definitely. You'll just have to tell them that you'll probably write about it again in the future and it would be very helpful to have a paper copy to refer to. All right. Yeah, I'll try that. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, that's, that's it for me. I have other things that I am in the, uh, in the process of reading, but I'm, it's too soon to talk about. Yes, I, uh, I have other things on the table, but we'll save them for the next conversation. And if there was uh, a bit of background noise in this podcast, it's because there are, I have house painters at the moment. And though I asked them... Um, I tried to explain to them to, that it would be a good time to take a break. Uh, they may not have entirely worked. So if, if, there were, if there were strange sort of background little bumps and thuds... Um, that's it would be better to leave those mysterious, but all right. Right, you could just assume... Uh, I don't, yeah, you could make a sort of murder mystery out of it, like yeah. there, was ah! a, there was a strange thud or... <laughs> and then Marsha disappeared. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, um, nice talking to you as usual, Marcia. Yes, one more solidarity with Gaza, and then thank you, Ursula. Yeah, it can't be said enough. All right. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.